Good morning. I saw an article in USA Today not long ago about the rich and famous out in California, Malibu Beach. They've erected a chain-link fence to keep the riffraff off of their beach. And that reminded me, just reminded me to sort of question or think about the spiritual benefits of a fence. What's a fence for? Typically, we think of a fence as a barrier, like this is my property, that's your property, you stay off my property, my kids are in my yard, I can spank them. If your kids are in my yard, I can spank them. <laughs> the fence is the, is the point of, of dividing. Well, the fences not only keep the unwanted out, but they also keep what's wanted in. I saw a study that was done some time ago about some children on a playground. They did, uh, the playground was by this really busy street, and it didn't have a fence around the playground, and the children would not get off of the jungle gym area in the middle and play on the grass that surrounded it. And then they put a fence around the playground, and not only did the children get off the jungle gym and get out in the grass, they actually started climbing the fence, and uh, like they really appreciated the fact that they had a barrier to keep them in. They felt far more secure which was the bottom line of what this study revealed. We also found out very something, something similar about the benefit of fences with regard to our dogs. Um, when Kathy and I moved into our current house, I bought what is called an invisible fence. Have you heard about the invisible fences for dogs? Well, I tried it a couple ways. First way was we have two acres out in Aubrey, and I rented one of those little uh, machines that dig a trench and dug a trench all around our two acres and about the time I got started it started raining and so just imagine digging a trench and spending two acres on your knees anyway I won't get into the, all the negative parts of it say so it gave me a lot of time to think about the benefits of a fence well the the wire under the ground was supposed to provide this magnetic circle around our property that works in conjunction with the dog's collar. It turns out that the wire under the ground doesn't work near as well as having this little box that radiates sort of a, a cell. And if that dog gets outside of the cell, then their collar notifies them that they shouldn't be outside the cell. At first, it notifies them in a couple of ways. The first is when the dog gets close to the edge of the perimeter, it starts beeping which is an indication, turn around and go back where you're supposed to be. If they ignore that and they keep going, the beeping intensifies, and if they ignore that, they get, and I love the way this is phrased, a static correction. <laughs> That's what the instruction manual says. They get a static correction, which is, which is marketing for, they shock your dog. Well, we had two dogs at the time, and one dog, our, our, our first dog, Rhea, she got the message fast. We don't get outside the perimeter. This is not good. And so Kathy and I, but our second dog, not quite as sharp as Rhea. So Kathy and I were going for a walk, and we left the dogs at home, because sometimes it's nice to just walk on your own. Well, the dogs see us. 
and they think, oh, it's time to go for a walk. And so they start coming towards us, and we just watch them because they're about to approach the barrier. Well, the beeping starts happening, and Rhea stops and gets the message and turns around and goes back. But our other dog, Carly, she's just goes right on through. It's beeping, and we're yelling at her, stop, stop. And she won't stop. She, and she runs straight through the barrier and gets out into the street, and then the static correction begins. And she's just there, just sort of twitching in the street. She doesn't know what to do. <laughs> and, Ka- and Kathy's motherly instincts kick in, and she says, go help her. So I run over there, and I reach down and grab Carly, and now I'm getting the static correction. <laughs> so we both stumbled back inside the cell, And I thought, you know, I probably need to do a little more training with Carly on this. But I really got to thinking about that in regard to our spiritual lives. Because what if we had a static correction caller? And every time we got outside the fence of God's word, we got zapped. Some of us, some of us would be lying on the ground, wouldn't we? Well, the crazy thing is, in a sense, we do. With the Holy Spirit within us, our callers go beeping a lot. Does your caller beep a lot? Mine beeps a lot. And sometimes it zaps as well, doesn't it? There's such a benefit to fences. It's an incredible blessing. But the amazing thing is that God gives the choice to us. He doesn't lock the gate on the fence. It's wide open. He leaves it open. And he tells us, inside the fence is where you're protected. It's where I want you to be. And even when you're struggling, it's part of my will for you. Outside the fence. If you get outside my will, then life outside the fence of God is far more miserable than the misery inside the fence of God. Let's look together at the book of 2 Kings, and we'll start in chapter 21. I know your notes say 22, but I told Lisa wrong. We'll get to 22, but 21 is where we're going to begin. 2 Kings 21. We're taking a single message from every book of the Bible And as we've gone through up to this point, we've seen that uh, Solomon, last week in 1 Kings, with the wisdom that Solomon asked of God, ultimately, wisdom isn't enough because wisdom has to be accompanied by obedience. And Solomon's divided heart ultimately divided the nation, and the nation split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So now you have two nations, two capitals, two kings, and the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. Well, in chapter 21 of 2 Kings, we have saved the worst for last, in a sense. We're going to look at a king called Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, let's start right in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. 
55 years is the longest reigning king that uh, Israel had or that Judah had. Adolf Hitler ruled for 12 years. Stalin ruled for 12 years. Manasseh ruled 55 years. So just do the math and go back 55 years in your mind to whatever that is in the 60s. And that's how long Manasseh reigned. He was the worst king that Judah ever had by far, which is amazing because Manasseh had one of the godliest fathers in the Old Testament, Hezekiah. Manasseh was a, uh, a king that tore down fences. Hezekiah had built a lot of fences, done a lot of great things. Manasseh tore them down. And we're told in this verse that we just read that he, he did evil in such a way that was even worse or according to the abominations of the nations that God possessed. In other words, the Canaanites that Joshua drove out, that's how bad Manasseh was. Look specifically at what he did. Verse 3. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft, and used divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Remember when we read through Joshua, that the, the message that we did in Joshua, when Joshua took the nation Israel to Shechem. In Joshua 24, we saw that uh, he took them to Shechem, which is not the first time that they were there. He went at the beginning of the conquest and divided them and put half on this mountain and half on this mountain, and they shouted the blessings and the curses to each other, basically reminding them that the reason that we're in the land, the reason that we're going to stay in the land, is because we're obedient to the law of God. So they started knowing the only reason that we're in the land and that we can stay in the land is because of the law of God, that we, we commit ourselves to following God's law. And God had told them, when it gets to a point where you don't obey the law of God, I will take you out of the land. There will be an exile. And so we're told here in 2 Kings these very specific things that Manasseh did. We won't turn back to Deuteronomy 18, but Deuteronomy 18 mentions some of these very things with the warning that God will take them out of the land if these things are done, and Manasseh did them. We don't know why, but Manasseh sought to break God's law with just as much passion as Hezekiah, his father, had sought to obey God's law. 
what causes a child to turn like that from the faith of their father. But it happens, doesn't it? We've seen it happen in various lives that we know, and maybe even in our own lives. We have been Manasseh. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that Manasseh, we're told here that, that Manasseh caused his son to pass through the fire. Specifically, this occurred in the valley called Hinnom. The Hinnom Valley is the southern valley that goes around the bottom of Jerusalem. If you were to look at a map, it's the big valley that goes all the way around the bottom. And we're told that in that valley, the, uh, that Manasseh sacrificed his child. He put it um, to, to the god Molech. What they would do is they, they had a statue of Molech whose hands were outstretched like this, and they would heat that statue up to where his hands were white hot, and they would take the live child and put it on the hands of Molech. This is Manasseh. Manasseh sacrificed his own children. What in the world he thought to gain by that is beyond reason, but he did it. Look at verse 9. But they did not listen. Let's see, I skipped something here. Um, Yeah. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. If we were to continue reading, you can just glance down through it. You can see that God sent his prophets to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. God sent the fence menders to build these fences back up, but Manasseh destroyed them, destroyed the fences as well as the prophets. Now, keep your finger here in 2 Kings and turn to the right to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 33. I had somebody tell me one time, oh, I don't read, uh, I don't read Chronicles. I don't read First and Second Chronicles. I mean, I've already read First and Second Kings. It's just a repeat. I said, so do you read Mark, Luke, and John once you've read Matthew? It's a repeat, but there's different emphasis. The purpose of Kings is to basically give the reason why the exile happened. All the reasons that the exile happened. So, what's the purpose of Chronicles since it occurred, uh, since it covers the same ground basically as First and Second Kings? Well, Chronicles, which was one book originally, but we call it First and Second Chronicles, was written after the exile, and its purpose was to emphasize specifically the godly kings of Judah that had a passion for the temple because it was encouraging those coming back into the land to rebuild the temple. So it emphasizes the faithfulness of the kings. First, first and second kings emphasize the godlessness of the kings to justify the exile. So before the exile, first and second kings. After the exile, first and second chronicles. And so when we look at second chronicles, we see something first kings leaves out. We see Manasseh's repentance. We don't see Manasseh repenting in 1 Kings. We just see a godless king. Here's why the exile happened. But look at this amazing turn of events in 2 Chronicles. Look at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10. 
This picks up the exact parallel passage that we just read in 2 Kings. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. The marginal reading here I have for hooks says, thongs put through the nose. It, the Hebrew word refers to a word that was used when you pierced a fish's gills. When you were fishing, you'd put a hook through the fish's gills. It was a, a word that was also used of putting a, a ring in the nose of a beast that was out of control, like we've seen done with bulls. You want to control a bull? Stick a ring in its nose, and all of a sudden, it's a little more tame because you're dragging it around by a very tender part of what it is. Uh, Manasseh had a nose hook. He had a ring in his nose. Like this beast that was out of control, he was led off to Assyria to be disciplined by the Lord. And all of a sudden, Manasseh has a change of heart. Bertrand Russell was asked what he would say if God were to meet him. Russell said, I will tell God he did not give me enough evidence. Some of us were talking last week about the, the, the great challenge of the people who've never heard about Jesus Christ. The book of Romans tells us God's given us all the evidence we need to prove his existence. Our challenge really isn't that we don't have enough truth. Our challenge is the truth we have, we suppress. We see evidence of God, but we suppress it rather than embrace it. And once we embrace it, the Bible shows God will give more revelation, and ultimately he will give the gospel. But why would God give us the gospel right at first to give us greater condemnation if we would reject the ultimate message? Our problem is not that we don't know the truth, it's that we suppress the truth. I had to <laughs> chuckle when I read of this law, Massachusetts law back in 1675. There was a law that went into effect requiring that church doors be locked during services because people were leaving before the end of the message. <laughs> you imagine if we tried that today? There'd be all kinds of lawsuits and front page news. We can lock the doors. We could, strap it. we could be strapped to our chairs. We can't make people listen. Nobody can make us listen if we're not tender to the heart of God. <laughs> I read another, talk about great marketing, um, like with the, the fence thing. This is even better. There was a United States company that used to have an action figure called Invisible Jim. If you ever see the action figure, Invisible Jim, that's because he's invisible. You haven't seen him. But they marketed this. It was, a, it was an empty package. It was a package with nothing in it. And it said Invisible Jim. And it sold like hotcakes. I kid you not. And the marketing said this. It said, realistic fake hair. It said, as not seen on TV. Camouflage suits sold separately. 
Some of the company, when, the, when they got it, some of the companies, the distributors got it, said that when they, their first shipment came in that they thought it was a mistake at the factory because there was nothing in the product. And they said, no, that's it. There's nothing. It's invisible gem. <laughs> the people buy this. I thought, what a great illustration of what the world sells us, isn't it? We buy we buy what the world tells us, and we get all excited about what the world offers us, and we open it up, it's an empty box. C.S. Lewis said there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who bend their knee to God and say, your will be done, and those who refuse to bend their knee, and God says to them, all right then, your will be done. That was Manasseh. He bought into the world's lie that if you buy this great-looking box, you'll get what you want. And, and the reality is when, it's, when it all shakes down, it's empty. That life outside the fence is not the great promise that, uh, that you think it is. Same lie that occurred in the Garden of Eden, that life after the rebellion is going to be better, that somehow God's word is limiting you and keeping you from your full potential if you'll just crawl outside of God's will and God's word, you can, you can reach your full potential. Well, you have a potential that's dangerous, is what God's word tells us. And Manasseh learned it the hard way. We read in these verses that God spoke to Manasseh in verse 10, and to the people, but they paid no attention. They paid no attention. The word should be a great lesson to us, and I've written down this lesson, this principle, that is great for us to remember. What we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through struggle. What we refuse to learn through instruction, God may teach us through struggle. There's no doubt that God's word is our teacher. It's a great teacher. But struggle is a great substitute teacher. If we don't listen to the teacher, we will listen to the substitute. Somehow that substitute tends to get our attention. God's discipline is different for everybody. You ever notice that about your kids or your grandkids? Some respond with just talking to, and some, you got to pull the belt out. I was one of the belt out kids. <laughs> I can still hear the belt slapping against my, my stepdad's belt loops as it came out. You know that sound? Slap, 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 as it's coming out. You're thinking, oh, here it comes. But other kids, you just talk to them and they begin to cry. Manasseh took a hook in the nose to get his attention. Being led off his grand thr throne and his grand reign, and taken to exile into Assyria, where the northern kingdom was taken into exile. This was the king of the south. So he's taken to exile where the northern kingdom was. And, and his heart got tender. Well, look at what happened in verse 12. It's almost amazing to believe. When he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, 
he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. It's incredible to read those words. And in some sense, we don't want to read those words. We want Manasseh to get the nose ring. We want that horrible criminal on death row to not receive Jesus before he dies. We want some sense of justice for the pain that we've seen, that we've experienced. And yet God looks at all of us as in desperate need of the grace of God. In his distress, the text says, he called out to God. In his distress, Manasseh finally let go of the illusion that he was in control. And the text goes on to show that the repentance was real. If you were to look down through the text that follows, at all that Manasseh did, and particularly when it talks about he, uh, he, he offered sacrifices to God, sacrifices that were not required. Uh, verse 16, it says, He set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Those offerings were not mandatory. They were optional. So he wasn't just checking the boxes. This was a real repentance. He was going above and beyond. The peace offering meant you were celebrating that you had peace with God. The thank offering meant you were thanking God for what he had done for you. It wasn't required. It was optional. And Manasseh did it. Here's another lesson, another principle. God stands ready to forgive even the worst sinner. When you're ready to give up on somebody that you've known for years who's not following Jesus Christ, remember Manasseh. When you're ready to give up, give up on that relative or that friend of yours or that professor or that, that, that hardened atheist that's in the news, that Hollywood actor or actress who campaigns against all that we know and love, Remember Manasseh. God can change a heart. He really can. There is a nose hook for everybody. Doesn't mean he will, but he sure can. He sure can. Never give up on someone that you think is too far gone. Never stop praying. Luke 18 verse 1 talks about uh, Jesus tells a parable telling them that they ought always to pray and never give up. Always to pray and never give up. And by the way, don't give up on yourself either. You know, nobody knows the sin in your heart more than you do. You know it deeper than anybody else. You know the depth of your own failings more than anybody else, and so do I. The only person that knows it more is the Lord. And the great challenge is that after we've lived a long time struggling with the same thing over and over, we can sort of get to the point where we think, well... I guess that's just me. And you just sort of live with it as opposed to dealing with it. Never give up on anybody else and never give up on yourself. Make a continued daily commitment to wrestle 
against the sin in your own life and to wrestle in prayer against the sin in the lives of other people. We'll turn back to 2 Kings, and now let's look at chapter 22. 2 Kings 22. The end of chapter 21 shows us that Manasseh dies. His son Ammon takes the throne. Ammon was just as godless as Manasseh was, but fortunately, Ammon only reigned two years. But Ammon had a son, and look at this amazing son. Chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord. Now let's pause there for a second. And let me just mention... Uh, Never underestimate the power of God in the life of a child. What was it that caused Josiah to become this godly young man, this godly boy? And then we're told in the 16th year of his reign, so now he's in his 20s, and he says, we're going we're gonna to rebuild the temple. We're going to restore the temple that my, my grandfather and my father tore down. God can work powerfully in the life of a child. God probably, in many of your lives, began working when you were a child. And genuinely, you trusted Christ as a child. I was, I think, five, six years old when I came to Christ. And I didn't really start walking with the Lord until I got to college and began to be discipled. My church was great at saving me, but it wasn't that great at teaching me to walk with Jesus when I was a boy. And that was the case here with Josiah. He followed the Lord as a child. And as a young man, his passion for the Lord only increased. And he told uh, Shaphan, the scribe, to go to the house of the Lord and to restore it. The, um, the parallel passage tells us in Chronicles that when Josiah was 16, he had a time of definite commitment to the God of Israel. When he was 26, as verses 3 and following show, he commands the repair of the temple that had fallen into neglect. And as they are repairing the temple, something happens. Look at verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. I love the way this is phrased because here you have Josiah being a godly young man without even the law. 
he was working strictly on tradition here. He didn't even have a copy of the scriptures that he was dealing with. Until they went up and some, some thinking scribe back years or generations earlier had hidden a copy of, of the Bible, had hidden, had hidden the law in the temple. And while they were doing repairs on it, it was, it was discovered. And it was discovered and brought, and notice how it was referred to. The, uh, the scribe, it says, they have found the, the book of the law, but when it was reported to the king, Shaphan says, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. The priest calls it a book, whereas the scribe had said the book. Subtle. But it's significant, especially that Shaphan the scribe mentions it second. The first thing he says is, by the way, the repairs are going great. We've taken care of the money. You know, here's the financial report. Oh, and by the way, we found a book. This is a priest saying this. I would think a priest, the first thing would be, by the way, we found the Bible. We found the law. But this is the culture and the times with which we're dealing coming out of the backwash of Manasseh and Ammon. Godly King Josiah hears the words of the Bible and tears his clothes. Undoubtedly, this is a uh, turning point for Josiah. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. Josiah was dealing with the results. He was living in the wake of godless parents and godless grandparents. Manasseh was godless. Ammon was godless. And Josiah admits it. We are living in the wrath of the Lord. The great is the, the wrath of the Lord against us because of what our fathers have done. It's not us, but we're, we're, leaving, we're dealing with the decisions of previous generations. How should we respond when that's true of us? Because it can be. Maybe you had godly parents and grandparents, or maybe you didn't. Maybe, like Josiah, you came to the point of realizing, by God's grace, he opened your eyes, and you thought, I'm not going to be like my folks. I'm not going to be like my grandparents. I have seen what happens when you get outside the fence. It is a blessing to be in the fence. And when Josiah hears the word of God, he is moved with compassion and with passion to obey it. And that's exactly what he does. He calls together all the people of Jerusalem. It, the text goes on to say that he, he has the, the law read to the people so that they can hear the word of God. And he leads his people in a ceremony of a covenant renewal where they pledge themselves to follow God. And also Josiah brings about the greatest reform that Judah had experienced because they went straight to God's word as the standard and they lived it. They renewed the covenant. The verses that follow also say that Josiah tore down anything that conflicted with the worship of God. Anything in the temple that was pagan, he had removed and burned in the Kidron Valley, which was right by the temple. 
Um, he had destroyed, he destroyed the places in the Hinnom Valley where the children were sacrificed. And he found all the pagan altars throughout Judah and even went north into Israel to the northern kingdom and he found altars there to foreign gods and destroyed those. His reforms were nationwide and even crawled outside of Judah into the northern kingdom. Not only did he tear down what was opposing, but he also built up what strengthened their walk with God because they celebrated the Passover and the text tells us that they celebrated a Passover not the likes of which hadn't been done since the time of Samuel. Josiah was the real deal. He had a passion for God and he had a passion that his people follow God. But based on what he's done, we have a model here that gives us a great principle for our lives as well. And here it is. Commit to tearing down what competes with your walk with God and to the building up of that which assists it. Tear down that which competes with your walk with God and build up that which assists it. That's exactly what Josiah did. He went on a hunt to find the things that were in competition with God and he got rid of it. He burned it. He destroyed it. He, uh, he, he completely removed it so that it wouldn't even be a temptation for his people. He didn't just say, I'll leave it and we won't use it. He got rid of it altogether. That's the principle that we can apply. And it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to let the radar of God's word scan throughout your life and to just to let, to let it land on something. And you say, okay, that's something that is competing with my walk with God. It needs to go. I need to deal with that. Also, he built up what assists it. They celebrated the Passover. You know, it's just a wild guess, but I'm guessing Manasseh didn't celebrate the Passover. Or Ammon. For the last 50, almost 60 years since the time of Hezekiah, the nation hasn't known it. There's a whole generation, probably two generations, that never experienced the Passover and walking with God from leaders who love the Lord. Josiah said, we're going to turn a corner and we're going to be different. We're going to get rid of everything that competes with our walk with God, and we're going to build up that which assists our walk with God. What is it in your life that assists your walk with God, that after you've done it, you feel closer to the Lord? Well, you are closer to the Lord. Worship does that. Time in the scriptures does that. We also see Josiah's commitment to the scriptures. Fellowship with people that encourage you and whom you can encourage does that. Whatever it is in your life that builds up your walk with God, do that. Spend time with that. Invest money in that. It's worth the investment of your time and your money to build up your walk with God. Go to conferences. Do whatever it takes to build up your walk with God and to tear down that which competes. It's what Josiah did, and God was exceedingly pleased with this king who was a little too late to stop what was going to happen. The best that the Lord would do for Josiah is to say, you know what, the exile is still coming. What Manasseh did for the nation and what the nation did following Manasseh is inexcusable. The exile is coming. But Josiah, it's not going to come in your lifetime. Because of your godliness, I'm going to push it off. And that's just what happened. I saw in the news this week 
that a Bible, which had belonged to Abraham Lincoln, was donated. It was actually, it belonged to Lincoln, and it was given to a friend of the family, a minister in the family, and it had been sort of forgotten and hidden for 150 years. And this family decided, you know what, we need to donate this to Lincoln's library, to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Illinois. So this Bible is now on display this week for the first time, Abraham Lincoln's Bible. The thing weighs 18 pounds. So this is not the Bible you take on a trip to Israel. <laughs> this is a Bible that belongs in a museum. But the executive director made a statement that I thought was very, very fascinating. He told the New York Times, quote, We see this Bible as an important artifact to preserve for history's sake, but also the beginning of a conversation about the relevance of Lincoln and the role of religion in our lives today. You know, I'm just guessing that many people are going to look at it only for the, the first part of that. It's interesting because what, what, what role it played in Lincoln's life, which is an ongoing debate, some even accuse Lincoln of being an atheist, which is, which is ridiculous when you read uh, what he's written and what he said. But nevertheless, I thought it was fascinating because here you have a Bible that's hidden for all this time and that finally comes to light and it goes in a museum. Well, Lincoln's Bible belongs in a museum. But when you think about Josiah, it reminded me of this. In our lives, our Bibles don't belong in museums. Lincoln's does. But ours belongs in our lives, doesn't it? It doesn't belong as a relic that we admire as a piece of history that's sort of over there. And it's interesting because it belonged to a famous person. But it's also the Word of God. The Bible is not something that we just keep on the shelf. It is something, as Josiah did, once he read it, it actually made a difference in his life. Boy, it takes great discipline to read the Word on a regular basis. It takes even greater discipline to allow the Bible to renew our minds. So I just want to encourage you this week, as you read the Word, this great treasure that you have in your lap, the great treasure that you have in your house, probably more than one copy. You probably have a Bible in every room of your house. And we do too. We've got lots of Bibles. But the Bible is a special book, not because it's mine or because it belongs to any person in particular, but it's special because God uses this book to give us information, to give us truth. And with this book, he builds a fence around our lives, not to keep all evil out or to protect us from all harm, but to give us insight into truth that we would never know otherwise. Left to ourselves, we become Manasseh. Without the fences of God's word, we become Manasseh. But with the word, we become like Josiah, with the courage and the passion to tear down everything that competes with our walk with God and to build up everything that assists our walk with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you are committed to teaching us through the word and, if necessary, through experience, like Manasseh, with nose hooks, with discipline, 
to bring us back into the fence where we can be guided and instructed and held up for your glory as we honor you and we follow your word. We're also grateful, Father, that like Manasseh, you can forgive the worst of sinners, of which we are. We think of Paul's words where he calls himself the chief of sinners. And each of us in our own moment of honesty could say the same thing. That we fail so often, Lord, and yet your, your great grace covers that and uh, doesn't give us excuse to continue, but gives us the grateful hearts to live lives of thanks. Thank you so much for Josiah, for this godly young man who had the courage in a culture that was anything but godly, had the courage to go against the example of his parents and grandparents, and instead chose to live according to the Word of God. Help us to be like him. Help us to be the ones that have the courage to open the Word, to have a tender and compassionate heart when it's read, and to immediately let it affect the decisions we make of removing what conflicts with our relationship with you and builds up that which assists it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.